Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. In this week's episode, we visit with Maggie Hudson, the CEO of Saniam Hospital, a 40-bed acute care hospital located in Staten, Oregon, serving over 30,000 people a year. Among the many topics that we cover, we discuss what it was like to become the CEO during the COVID-19 outbreak. That led us to the topic of desirable difficulties, essentially obstacles and experiences that make learning more challenging, slower and more frustrating in the short term, but better in the long term. We also cover how a diverse professional background creates more professional range, which can actually help by creating insightful analogies by recognizing conceptual similarities in multiple domains from prior experiences. An insightful analogy takes the new and makes it familiar, or takes the familiar and puts a new light on it and allows us to reason through new problems. Finally, we cover trust and how to build a high-performing culture at length. As a self-proclaimed underdog, I loved Maggie's insights on cultivating a vibrant culture that actually supports the organization's vision. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Maggie Hudson. Maggie Hudson, welcome to Success That Last. We're excited to have you today. Thanks for having me. I just want to introduce our listeners to you with, with who you are today, CEO of, of a hospital, but more importantly, how does a talented lady grow up in Sacramento end up out in state and Oregon? Life is the journey, right? And so I always ask myself that question, how did I end up here and stay here? So I've been at Seniam Hospital for 28 years. And so I think that is telling of itself is because that's been part of this journey too. But how did I get here originally? Born and raised in Sacramento and went to college got the job, you know, so I'm a child of the 80s. And so graduate and from college in 1989. And at that time, this is going to predate you because I'm older. I was hired by one of the big eight firms down in San Jose. And I worked for one day. And so you work out, you get an accounting degree, you get the job you want. And I start and I decide, hmm, I'm going to move to Eugene, Oregon. And so after a day, I pick up my bags and I move to Eugene. No, How did Eugene get on your, on your radar from San Jose? You know, it's funny because I used to never tell this story. And so I'm going to tell it to you. It's only because of a guy, right? And yeah. so the only reason why people do stupid things like that, maybe not stupid, but impulsive, and so I thought it was the right thing to do. We're young. I'm 21 years old, yeah. out of college. It's not hard to get a job. And boy, was I wrong. It was really hard to get a job. So I packed up my bags, moved to Eugene, and I got my first job. I have an accounting degree, but I didn't go to the University of Oregon. I didn't go to OSU. And so I'm not really 
well accepted. And so I got a job at McKinsey Willamette Hospital in Springfield. Yeah. And so if you're familiar with that, you went to U of O. So yep. you know where it is. And that was my first real accounting job because it was tough to get a job. I'm not going to lie. I ended up working for financial advisory company. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about getting my Series 7 and going into finance instead. And then this job came up at McKinsey Willamette. And I decided I really liked working in a hospital. And I was in the accounting department. I was doing financial statements, the kind of basic accounting skill set. And then, I, of course, got married. And my husband at that time had graduated from... He was going to U of O. And so we ended up moving to Salem. And it was early 90s and it was kind of a recessionary time. And so he was having a hard time getting a job. So we ended up in Salem. And so Steve Evans, who is with DeLap, I ended up getting connected to Steve. I didn't know Steve at that time. And um, the accountant with McKinsey Willamette, the controller there connected me to Steve. And I actually interviewed with Steve, hoping I would get hired by what his company was at that time. It was called Simons Evans. And and he didn't hire me, but he connected me to this little hospital in Staten called Saniam Memorial Hospital. So I met Steve and it was just this ironic introduction. So I, I come and interview at Saniam Hospital. And I think what it tells for me, so I took the job, obviously, and it yeah. was a good fit. And I was going into the accounting department and I was told at the time that the the controller was going to retire. I think she was in her late 60s. And 15 years later, she retired. It's true, but it took 15 years for her to retire. (laughs) And so it was a pretty big journey, but I came out to Saniam Hospital. I really, really enjoyed the environment. I will say I'm an advocate, I think, of the underdog. A lot of, you know, if you don't know this marketplace in the Willamette Valley, there's Salem Hospital, which is a 450-bed hospital. There's Silverton to our north, there's Lebanon to our south, and then there's Saniam Hospital smack dab in the middle of that. And so I would say we are the smaller hospital. We are somewhat the, you know, the unknown and, and that appeals to me. And so part of my journey is learning where you fit. And I think professionally and personally, I felt that I fit very well in a hospital capacity. And so I've been here ever since. I love that story. Maggie, talk to me a little bit about the, I mean, the journey from accounting and the roles that you've had the opportunity to experience, the skills that you obviously had to develop along the way. So you, you started off in an accounting role and, and presently the CEO of the, the hospital. So I guess, what were some of the, the gates professionally that you walked through to get to where you are today? That's a good question. So when I came into this role, so I did straight up GL accounting at McKinsey Lamont for a couple of years. And so felt I had a pretty good, I started to learn, you know, certainly revenue and reimbursement on a hospital side is fairly complex and had exposure to that because that's where they always put the newbie, right? Put them into reimbursement because nobody wants to be there. And so I started there. And when I came to Saniam, the controller at that time, she was really great. She just, we weren't, this was before electronic billing. This was, you know, so I'm dating myself. I hate to say this, but I came in in this capacity that I was going to be marketing, community development, but with accounting work. And I think it was because we didn't want to step on her toes and tell her, like, I wasn't going to take over for this person. God rest her soul. Her name is Betty Emery, and I have the utmost respect for her. 
I mean, she's a 60 something year, almost 70 year old woman who brought this hospital onto a computer system. So she deserves wow. all the credit in the world. Totally. But I would just take on projects. And so I just started taking on electronic billing with Medicare because we didn't bill claims electronically. Anytime there was something that, you know, because I was younger and I was probably pretty enthusiastic, I was just willing to take on whatever where there was a hole, I would fill it. And so I ended up having the great opportunity of really learning the entire organization from soup to nuts. And so when you take on projects, whether it's a human resources issue or marketing, so I started getting much more into the strategic development of the organization. And my role then evolved from being this community relations accounting role into, it was clear that Betty was going to stay and they didn't need me to do GLs financial statement work. And so I started just progressing past that. And it started really becoming strategic development of this small hospital that contains... So we're a 40-bed acute care hospital in state and Oregon. And it was at a time where six physicians had independent practices and there was a hospital. And healthcare started to evolve at a very rapid rate where the relationships where physicians and providers became employed So now we own and operate 12 clinics. We have a brand new replacement hospital that we built out in 2013. We had to seek HUD funding for a loan. And so you just, when you're in this type of a role, you start to take on the projects that need to get done. And that's how I ended up. I go from being the CFO, COO, and then Terry Fletchall, who was the CEO, retires last year. And I'm fairly well positioned then to take over as the CEO. Interesting. So there's a lot of range to your background. And it it reminds me of something I guess that sometimes I've observed is the ability to kind of use other experiences, essentially analogous thinking, identifying kind of conceptual similarities across a variety of different domains. So it allows you to see new problems in familiar ways, right? And so you're able to repurpose those experiences to positively impact that. And so to what extent do you think range and all that diversity of of experience has enabled you tackle new problems, but within a familiar context? I think you are absolutely correct in that a lot of the problems have similar underlying premises. And so you apply those premises and you learn from them and you expand on them. I think what really makes a difference is making sure you don't make the same mistake over and over again and you learn. And so I think that I've been able to apply the lessons learned from opening one clinic. So we built out a clinic and we, okay, so we built out another clinic we brought on. And and I totally agree that I've just been fortunate and blessed to be in an organization where I was able to have a global perspective from the beginning. I had the opportunity to, if there was a project that needed to be tackled, I was able to do that. And so a lot of it just takes research, then applying what you've learned as you were talking about, like the platform's the same, it's just a little varied and applying those skills, you know, and your knowledge base, and it continues to grow and evolve. Along the way, I I do believe in formal education as well. I did go back and I got my MBA when I was 39 because I did believe that in order to continue to grow professionally, I needed to look outside these four walls. And so I don't think you can learn everything internally. I can't, I believe you can't be siloed. I believe we are lifelong learners. And so I did pursue an MBA because I did feel like having more 
a broader type of a formalized education would be healthy. So, and I did go to Oregon. Just want you to know. Go Ducks. There you go. Yeah. I got, got my MBA at Oregon too, but I didn't do it when I was 39 juggling a career and family. So I, uh, so you probably learned a, a fair amount about time management as well in the midst of all the other things you were learning. Absolutely. I, I, it was probably the busiest time in my life. My daughter was 10, you know, I'm married and working full time and, but it was outstanding. I wouldn't change it for anything. One of the things I'm, I'm fascinated by about healthcare is its roots date back to like the early traditions of thousands of years BC, like Babylon, China, India, Egypt, you know, the Hippocratic Oath goes all the way back to ancient Greece in the fifth century BC. And so it's not a new industry. It might be one of civilization's older industries. And so it's not going away either. It's a persistent industry, but it's changing so quickly. And so I guess in the midst of this ancient industry that's persistent is not going away, but is for sure changing. Talk to me about what you, you have identified are some of the important cultural traits, team traits, strategy observations that will enable an organization to sustain, to make the required changes to, to end up on the right side of you know, reality and when down the road with the inevitable change that they're wrestling with right now. Yeah, there is so much change, but so much is the same. And so I think it's that balance between becoming more proactive. So A, you have to have an engaged group. So I believe that you need an organization like ours needs to be led by providers. So we have, you know, a chief medical officer, the director of our medical clinics is a PA. In healthcare, you cannot just have us financial people running and leading an organization that is clinical. And so I really believe in the trust and the the leadership of your clinical counterparts. And so that's not to dismiss the side that's more strategic or financial and analytical, but it's, it's marrying those two together because I really believe the clinically driven element of a hospital is that you become more preventative and more proactive and more population health-based. Because what we've seen is this evolution has gone from, we've gone from a hospital with a few clinics to be a health system. So being able to integrate your healthcare across the inpatient and outpatient world has been, I think, the greatest challenge as well as the most exciting change of a culture shift for us is to look at ourselves as a system as opposed to individual siloed healthcare entities. And so I think just always keeping your culture, your group focused on how do we continue to integrate our care And how do we continue to integrate our relationships with one another really is the reason why you hold on to your old culture while bringing it forward to what's coming down the pipeline, because it is changing. It's progressing. Your reimbursement models change. You have to adapt to how you're getting paid. You have to adapt to what the patient wants. And so always listening to what's coming and making sure you are part of that change, I think is really key to being relevant in the healthcare place. All right. So you opened Pandora's box. I'm super excited to talk to you about culture. Okay. So I guess start by defining it. Okay. And then I would like to understand how you've come to understand this, this mutual dependency of maybe some of the administrative leadership and strategy 
with marrying it with uh, the healthcare providers and kind of a, a need to the need for mutual respect and the need to cultivate trust yeah. across these different professional disciplines. Okay, so culture, my favorite topic. So we have a luxury. We're small, right? And so we have about 500 employees. They are hospital-based or clinic-based. I said that we view ourselves more as a health system. So our culture is a number one, first and foremost, as we are, we call fiercely independent. And so I would say the culture of Saniam Hospital is we have this independent streak that brings independent thinkers and it breeds independent thinkers and it keeps us independent. And it's not to say that being part of a system isn't a really, really great strategy. That's a very, very valid strategy. But our culture has been driven by maintaining our independence so we can be a community-based hospital that delivers the care that needs to be delivered within our communities. We want to define that care that's delivered. And the only way to do that is by marrying the culture of this engaged physician provider group so your physicians, your NPs, your PAs are completely on the same page. Our culture at San EM does not distinguish between hospital administration versus the medical group. We're one of the same. We're a small hospital that has a chief medical officer. We are driven, I mean, most of our committee structures and our strategic planning process is physician and provider engaged. And and I really do think that is a culture, the respect that we provide to the providers and then the respect that's provided back to the administrative teams, because you have to have both to be successful and you certainly can't be siloed or certainly not at odds. And so part of our culture has been to be able to be united as we move forward and nothing unites you more than your own independence. Wow. Okay. I think we found what we're talking about for the rest of our time today. Oh, cool. I love it. So <laughs> I guess what's the framework that's been most effective for you to maybe measure or monitor culture, magnify it and transmit it, you know, as people come and go throughout the organization. And I guess the role that making the job like something that really leans into somebody's purpose and potential versus right. some of the indirect motives of pain and pleasure that that are often used in less culture-centric organizations? I think it's a really interesting conversation because I believe that, you know, how much of our time do we spend at work? A lot. Yeah. And so when you talk to people about what is their purpose in life, you have to take off the table friends and family and health because those are givens, right? Our purpose in life is to maintain and support our, our family, first and foremost, our friends, and our own good health. And if we're taking care of those things, then what is your purpose in your profession? And I think that what it comes down to is you spend a lot of time together. And in my mind, relationships matter. Nothing matters more than the relationships that we can forge together. And whether that's the relationship that you foster if you're a provider with your patients but I really do believe in the relationships that we foster amongst our own staff. And so we believe in healthcare that you can choose to work wherever you want. We live in a very competitive environment. Our staff can work anywhere. If you are an RN, you can work at Salem Hospital, Silverton Hospital, Lebanon, Albany, Saniam. So what keeps people here? And why would you work at Saniam Hospital instead of work at another facility? And I think it is because of that culture 
It is because you are asked, you have a voice, you are expected to participate, you are engaged in ways that allow us to do it because we're smaller. So it's not to say that being bigger isn't okay, but bigger isn't always better. You know, just because it's a bigger organization, it doesn't mean it offers more to its staff. So we have advantages. And I think taking advantage of being smaller is something we have done well. You keep referencing San Diego as smaller, and, and by industry standards, it certainly is. But 500 people spread across a variety of different locations, you're juggling a lot. We are. And we still have to offer what everybody else offers with less resources. And so I think it's even more challenging. When I started, we had 76 employees and now we have about 500. So we have really experienced a lot of growth and continue. And so I think of us as small because of where I come from. Yeah. And then I compare us to our, you know, to Salem, you know, we, we aren't even the size of a department of Salem Hospital, right? And so we are technically considered, a, so we're a type B hospital. So if you're familiar with the way hospitals are structured in the state of Oregon, so that means for reimbursement purposes, we are cost of charges for type B, but for Medicare purposes, we're a DRG hospital. So I always call us, and I say this very fondly, I call us an awkward size. We are an awkward size in that we don't have the deep pockets and resources of a large institution, but we're not a frontier hospital that has a captive you know, community to draw from. Yeah. And so we're, we're in a really competitive market space having to offer exactly what gets offered right down the road, yet maybe we don't have the depth that we need to be able to compete. So we have to be better. You know, we have to be a little more attentive and a little more hands-on. Maggie, that sounds to me like you're Goldilocks size. You're not too big and you're not too small. That's okay, so maybe I should call us Goldilocks instead of awkward. Yeah, well, Goldilocks <laughs> sounds nice, you know. It sounds way better than awkward. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'll use that. We can reframe it. We'll just reframe it. I That's like it. I yeah. like it. Okay. Mar- we'll get back to your marketing roots, you know. Okay, okay, right. When a dual threat, a marketing project manager and a, a GL jockey. Yeah, right, right. It was, we were small then. We could do yeah. <laughs> I guess I would be fascinated to understand kind of this once in a century experience that, that you're hopefully at the tail end of called COVID-19. I presume kind of a global pandemic would be a stress test of any hospital's culture. It could strengthen it or it could break it. So I guess talk to me about the role that co- culture played? Because my understanding is, is that's kind of when you stepped into your, your present role as CEO is in the midst of like the, the early onset of COVID. True? True. Yeah. Right. That's, and, yeah. That's wild. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, t- spend a few minutes talking to me about what COVID was like in stepping into this leadership role and the role that culture played and whether it was strengthened or stressed Okay. in that adversity. Yeah, no, that's good. So COVID hit and... Terry Fletchall, the former CEO, was slated to retire May of 2020. And COVID hit in March of 2020. And we shut down. That's a great crystal ball. That's a spectacular crystal ball. I know, but lucky him, right? Yeah. To his credit, he was uncomfortable retiring at that moment and stayed on for an extra six months because he didn't, it was so uncertain. So, how does it feel as a small hospital with not a lot of resources to? shut down all of your services, 
have fear that you may be overwhelmed with a surge and prepare all of your staff, train everybody up to be prepared for a pandemic of what we were unsure how to treat, at what level of patient load we would have. And so I would say going into it, there was a tremendous amount of fear. The surge never came. We took care of, you know, inpatients. We had a lot of outpatient activity. We were testing. So what I would say is, you know, did it pull us apart or bring us together? Without question, it brought us together. I think we did some really unique things at Sanium Hospital. So A, we didn't, we never furloughed anybody. We never laid off a staff member. We never cut wages. And we did that before we knew we could qualify for any provider relief funds or before we would be receiving any funds or maybe a PPP loan. We on kind of just, we're going to get through this together. We held and we kept everybody employed, even though we shut down services. So that's a courageous decision. In hindsight, when it all played out, it's easy to to blow past that decision. So help pack that for me. Like, What was the why behind that decision in the midst of all that uncertainty? I think what we felt as an organization, so us as the leadership, I would include Terry, myself, and a few other key administrative staff. I would say we felt that providing security to our employees was far more important that they had financial security and we would figure something out. I mean, we had some money in reserve. It was, you know, so we we knew we could go a while. We didn't know how long. I mean, well, we knew how long, but I mean, we just, we didn't have a crystal ball as to how yeah. long it was going to go. I think you're absolutely correct. So we made that decision and I think you're right. It was, I think it was a courageous decision. I think it was a crazy decision in some respects because we heard about other health systems laying people off. Our culture has always been, we take it as a whole. We do not let the individual suffer. We take it as a whole group. And so when we've made other cuts, it's been across the board. It's never been handpicking and doing layoffs. It's always been as an organization, we thrive together or we all take a hit together. And so we decided organizationally, our staff needed the security. So we, we maintain that for the month of March and April. We lost $2 million in the month of April. We've never, we don't even lose $2 million in a year. And we lost $2 million in one month. And so, yes, was it terrifying? Yeah. We knew we could sustain a few months, six months. But luckily, indicators were coming that elective procedures were going to be allowed. You know, the surge didn't come. We started to see things. And so I think we made the right decision. Had it sustained at the levels of losses and the, I don't know if we would have been able to sustain that. And then we were able to secure a PPP loan that really brought us some funding. And then some CARES Act funding came in and it gave us some reprieve. So taking over at that time, I think there was a lot of fear. Terry then stepped back, but he didn't step out. And I thought that was really helpful for the stability of the organization, because I think organizationally, what does it say when you're your CEO who's been there for 38 years walks out in the middle of a pandemic. And so to his credit, he hung in as well. So I would say we kept the transition, stabilizing the organization to the best that we could. Yeah. Kind of a parallel story within DLAP. You know, our, our CEO had transitioned out of the organization around the, the same time due to kind of health concerns and and so our, our new CEO in the midst of a virtual environment, in the midst of our, you know, accounting busy season needed to step in. And yeah, it's, that's a wild time to assume 
the reins of, of any organization. But, but I guess as an insider, you already had so many of those mission critical relationships and the trust was already there. And so you can kind of hit the metaphorical treadmill that's on and keep up and make the necessary adjustments and kind of the adaptive execution that, that any business that's going to prosper in today's persistent change is going to need to demonstrate. I think that's true. I think that I've been able to build a relationship with our board, you know, as a nonprofit, we have a board of directors that we report to. And I think that I value and am grateful that they had the faith in me to take over at that time and to transition. And so I think so much of it is where you are organizationally. And even though it was in the midst of a pandemic, terrifying for me, yeah, and terrifying for the organization. But luckily, knowing and being here as long as I I wasn't like I was a new person coming in and learning the landscape. I have those relationships. The relationships matter. And we all have this mutual respect for one another. And so I feel like we've been able to forge ahead. It has made us stronger. We've done some really interesting projects that organizationally as a small hospital, we brought testing in-house with our own PCR testing, COVID testing. We partnered with Corbin University, which is a small university here in Salem. We partnered with a professor and we were doing COVID testing in-house before everybody was sending theirs out to LabCorp and all these other reference labs. And we were doing it in-house and that took a lot of Yankee ingenuity. I mean, and it's a very inexpensive because you couldn't get the medium to do the COVID testing. And so we solved that problem by taking it on ourselves. And that's where I think being part of a small Goldilocks or a size, you can turn quickly, you can move your organization. And so we're testing in-house where others are struggling to get testing done by outside entities. And so I like to think that our adaptability and our creativity bring us together as an organization. And that's why I feel like it's made us stronger as opposed to making us fall apart in the midst of what would be a very scary time. Isolated, ferociously independent culture. That sounds awesome. The kind of, kind of American heritage of right. ferocious independence and ingenuity and creativity. That sounds great. But like, it also sounds like without a structure, it could be chaos too, right? If everyone's ferociously independent and everyone's individually creative, organizationally, it's difficult to kind of create a cohesive strategy or or kind of this adaptive culture of execution. So you've demonstrated an ability to do that. So I guess what's, how do you take the positive attributes of independence and individual creativity to harness it for the collective good. There's a quote from Phil Jackson. He, he was a coach for, for the Bulls and for the Lakers. He says, the strength of the individual is the team and the strength of the team is the individual. And that codependence where there's strength going in both directions, I, I love. But in practice, when you actually try to apply it within an organization, it can be challenging. So I guess as the, the leader of ferociously independent people that are creative and adaptive, how do you get the, the good out of that? God, if you hadn't hit the nail on the head, I just, I'm pretty impressed that you actually have connected those dots so quickly because it is the crux of our growing pains. How do you standardize and adopt best practices across an organization where everybody is used to doing what, you know, practicing in a manner of which they normally practice and not having as much accountability or an infrastructure, right? And so that's where we were 15 years ago. 
And so these last 15 years of becoming more standardized in our practices, adopting EHRs and mechanisms and having a performance improvement structure, um, it has probably been one of the most difficult but exciting arenas to grow the organization because you have these independent people, very bright. You're right. They really enjoy the latitude of being this independent organization. And so I feel like leading it in some respects has been that listening that I was speaking to. It's what do people care about holding on to in the culture and really hearing where do they care, what matters the most, and what are they willing to give up? So what part of the autonomy are you willing to give up to have a better whole? But it's a really fine balance. And I will say it's something we still struggle with to date. And we will continue to struggle. But I really feel we have, real, we have made great strides. We have lost some people along the way because people are drawn to what we advertise or sell as an independent organization. And then they find that, you know, you're becoming a little bit more of a system. And so do I think that we will be able to maintain that balance? I do. I think that we have struck a balance and we will work diligently to maintain that balance, but it's not easy. So I love that we've, we've hit on another topic <laughs> that I care deeply about. I guess because so many organizations are at the intersection of what you're just describing, the need to kind of grow up a little bit, the need to pull back some of the entrepreneurial spirit to, so that it's more scalable and, and more systematic, more repeatable. If you had a few minutes to go back 15 years ago to talk to Maggie Hudson from 15 years ago, what, what are some of the most important themes or lessons that, that you've learned through this process, this journey to get you to where, where Sandy M Hospital is today? Wow. 15 years ago, Maggie. You know, I would say move a little swifter in getting everybody a, more of a systematic approach move a little quicker in those directions and make those conversations more transparent and not fear them as much. It was such a sacred topic for so long that I feel like we probably swept it under the rug longer than we should have. So I guess I would tell myself, don't fear the outcome because we can all adjust and we can all maintain our independence and still have a voice even while we make a better system, because I think making the better system does matter. I'm empathetic and sympathetic simultaneously to those fear of those, those conversations. Yeah. Where do you think the origin of that fear comes from? Because I, I feel that fear too at times. Where do you think the origin is? Oh, gosh. I think that we're raised to believe that if you give up any level of independence, then you no longer have control. I just think inherent, that's just human nature. And especially with people who are really independent thinkers and that come to settings like ours with that intention, we have the ability, you do get to practice more broadly in a setting like ours as a provider, probably as a nurse, in a lot of areas, you have a broader scope. And so it's not just the provider group, it's across the board, our entire staff, you are expected to be more of a generalist than a specialist. And so with that, it's a little more entrepreneurial, people have a little bit more of a voice, it can be a little more chaos. 
But I agree with you. It's like, how do you control the chaos in a way that manifests itself into a productive organization? And we have struggled with that over the years. So do I fear that? Yeah, I would tell myself 15 years ago, don't fear it, embrace it and figure out how to harness it a little bit better. Before we wrap up, I want you to cast a vision. I, I love listening to, to the visions that leaders have for their organization, not only just their, their head thoughts, but their heart thoughts for where they're taking their organization. And you know, as we're been at the organization for as long as you have, but at the helm here for about a year, talk to me about where, where Sanium is heading in the future. Yeah. To me, the vision of Sanium Hospital is to be the first provider of choice for our community members that they choose us first over any other healthcare option. And I say that because it has not historically been the case. And so to me, if, you know, if I were to leave, the legacy that I hope to leave behind is an organization where the community entrusts us as that provider of choice. When you say Sanium Hospital, your primary care provider is with us. You have delivered your baby at our hospital you have enjoyed the services here and feel we are equally competent, if not better than whatever your alternative was. That's what I want to leave behind. I know how much market share we own and we have a lot of room to grow. And to me, it's really about leaving that behind where when I, when I came here, people didn't say, oh, I work, that people pr- didn't proudly say I work at Sanium Hospital. I think it was convenient for a lot of people. It was in town and and now our staff, you know, we have billboards all over the area. People say, yeah, I work at Senium Hospital. And, and I think having the staff be proud of where they work and having the provider group be proud and having the change that, you know, in the community when people say, oh, I hear great things about Senium Hospital. That's where I see our vision. And that means we're first and foremost who you choose. Thank you, Hudson. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your insight, and most importantly, your energy with our community today. Well, I appreciate being given the opportunity. It has been a pleasure. I can talk about Sanium Hospital as long as you want. So, but I'm sure it's time and probably everybody is done. So I appreciate it, Jared. It's been a pleasure.